piece. But today we're finishing out your little, what, three week? It was a month, but, you know, Christmas. It was, it's been over a year since we started, I guess. Um, but, but we're finishing out the series on the Bible talking about the trustworthiness of Scripture. So last time, I don't even know how long ago it was. Um, last time, three weeks ago, we, we talked about that the Bible is inspired by God. That is God's very own words. And that affects everything we do with the Bible and we think about the Bible and how we approach the Bible. And I raised this question, but how do you know, right? How do you know the Bible comes from God? Because if we don't have confidence that it comes from God, we don't have any reason to see its authority or its truthfulness or its trustworthiness or its um, efficacy. And so today, it's, we're talking about trusting the Bible. How, how can we actually go about trusting Scripture? And here's the thing with that question. That's a hard question because, I mean, if you're like me, I, I feel like I've listened to enough true crime podcasts and watched enough detective shows where, like, if it came to it, I could probably solve a murder, right? I, I know the process. I've seen it. I've heard it so many times of here's what we investigate. Here's the kinds of clues we look for. But how do you go about investigating whether the Bible comes from God or not? How, how do you prove the Bible comes from God? It's, it's hard to even have a starting point there. And let me, let me jump in by way of analogy, right? So in Hebrews 6, 13 and 14, we read this. It says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. So here's the situation. God makes an oath to Abraham about his future. And when you make an oath, typically you swear by something that's more trustworthy than you are. Um, there's some sort of assurance that it's real, that this promise is going to be fulfilled. So when I bought my house, the bank and the seller didn't just say, Dan seems like a good guy. We trust him. We shook hands. They hand, handed me keys and we all went our merry way. Um, because when you buy a house, you go, Chrissy and I signed 180,000 different papers because the bank says, we don't actually trust Dan, but you know what we trust more than Dan? Taking this house back. Dan is not trustworthy. Real estate is. Dan might lie. The numbers don't. And so I swore by the house itself that we would pay for it. If I prove untrustworthy, the house won't as it belongs to the bank and not my family anymore. So likewise, when God goes to make a promise to Abraham, he goes and he swears by something more trustworthy than him. He puts forward collateral, and he goes all the way to the top. I swear by God himself that I will bless you, and I will multiply you. To which you say, wait a second, that doesn't count. Because you just said Dan can't swear by Dan to pay for his mortgage. How can God swear to God that he will do that? Isn't that the same thing? You have to swear by something greater. But what happens when there is nothing greater than yourself? What happens when there is nothing more trustworthy? Right? When we're trying to establish a foundation of truth, we climb up a rung of trustworthiness. If you don't trust me, trust the house. But what happens when God is already at the top rung 
and there's nothing more trustworthy. Does God swear by something less trustworthy than himself? Of course, that, that makes no sense. So he swears by himself the very top rung of trustworthiness, and then everybody accuses him of circular reasoning. It's not fair, but the way we argue for trustworthiness is by having something greater vouch for you. And so if scripture then, as we said last year, is the ultimate source of truth, and there's nothing above it, how do we argue for the truth of scripture? We argue from scripture, for scripture, and it frustrates people, but it doesn't need to. Uh, one theologian, John Frame, he says it this way. He says, the word of God in the end must authenticate itself. It cannot validate itself by appealing to something higher because there is nothing higher. It cannot appeal to a higher standard because it is itself the highest standard, the norming norm, the criterion of criteria. So it must appeal to itself. If this appears circular, the same kind of circularity occurs whenever someone tries to validate a claim to ultimate authority. If someone believes that human reason, for example, is the ultimate authority, he can establish that only by a rational argument. Similarly, if a Muslim attempts to validate the Quran as an ultimate authority, he must, in the final analysis, appeal to the Quran. And so, while most people want clarity on the truthfulness of Scripture by, um, usually going back to what happened in the early church and the councils, um, that, that's good, that, that's, that's fine, but ultimately, whatever happened in the early church won't prove the Bible's from God. It won't prove inspiration. You can't send history to do theology's God, to do theology's job, sorry. But the fact is that a theological question about the truthfulness of God comes by a theological answer and not a historical one is really, really good news. Um, so Jonathan Edwards, back in, uh, this was the 1740s, had this great missionary concern for the, the Native Americans around him. And I mean, he probably still is arguably the greatest American mind since our, our foundation. But he didn't think that historical arguments were the right path. He wrote, Miserable is the condition of the Hasatanak Indians and others who have lately manifested a desire to be instructed in Christianity, if they can come at no evidence of the truth of Christianity, sufficient to induce them to sell all for Christ in any other way than this path of historical reasoning. And then he says, the mind ascends to the truth of the gospel, but by one step, and that is divine glory. Unless men may come to a reasonable, solid persuasion and conviction of the truth of the gospel by the internal evidences of it, in the way that it has been spoken, that is, by a sight of glory, it's impossible that those who are illiterate, unacquainted with history, should have any thorough and effectual conviction of it at all. Right? If you... If you can't read, if you can't understand history, then how do you come to believe Scripture is true? And Edward says there has to be a better way because there, 
Surely uneducated people can trust the Bible. And he says there is a better way. There is one step of the argument to trusting Scripture, to trusting God, to trusting in the gospel. And that is the sight of glory. Edwards is saying you don't need church history. You don't need the process by which letters were written and then canonized to believe with solid reasoning the Bible came from God. All you need is to read it or to hear it and see the glory of God in it, to see God's own personality in Scripture, and that's solid ground to trust it. Um, last time I recommended the book, A Peculiar Glory by John Piper, um, that whole book is written to expand on this one idea from Jonathan Edwards, that the Bible has a peculiar glory to it that shows it's from God. Um, he gives this analogy in that book. He says... Uh, so think about in the Gospel of Matthew, in verse, where is it, 317 at Jesus' baptism, and in 17.5 at the Mount of Transfiguration, God the Father's voice comes from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So therefore, during Jesus' ministry, how did Jesus argue for his own divine nature that he is God's son? Because if it was me and the disciples asked, hey, how do we know that you're God's son? Knuckleheads. Remember the voice from heaven that said I'm God's son? That should be the evidence. That's how I would do it. But rather in John 14, 9, when Philip asks, Jesus says, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. There's a better argument in Jesus' eyes than a historical voice from heaven declaring Jesus as God's Son. And that's being with him, experiencing him. In, the, in John 1, we read, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory a glorious of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Seeing it for yourself is a better argument than the voice from heaven. So Piper writes, the point here is that God was discernible in Jesus, not because God shouted Christ's divinity from heaven, but because God was in Jesus. God was who Jesus was. They were united. The marks of divinity were in Jesus. The whole acting thinking, feeling, speaking person. So it is with the scriptures. They do not have a voice spoken over them. The word of man itself is united with the word of God. The marks of divinity are in the meaning of the writing. And so this morning we need to ask a very specific question, not how do you prove to a skeptic that the Bible is God's word, or how a Christian comes to belief, but rather, I want to ask the question, is there a legitimate basis for believing that Scripture is God's Word? And the answer is a resounding yes. Which begs a second question. How do we see that legitimate basis that Scripture is God's Word? To which Kelvin answers, well, it's just the same as if we were going to ask, how do we learn to distinguish uh, light from darkness, white from black, sweet from bitter. Scripture bears upon the face of it as clear evidence of its truth as white and black do, with color and sweet and bitter their taste. 
It's by seeing it. It's by tasting it. It's by <clears throat> experiencing it that we get to know that Scripture is truly from God. So do we understand how we start down this path? Somewhat, okay. Blank stairs is usually a good sign. I'll take it. Um, so what are the marks of divinity in Scripture then? How, how do we know whether it's light or darkness, sweet or bitter? Um, I think one of the best books on this is Canon Revisited by Michael Kruger. This is not an easy read. Um, a lot of books that are most helpful have about a third of them that are really helpful and about two-thirds that you skim. This book is, you know, the exact same way. It's probably a college or maybe even a seminary level. Um, but it's just excellent on pointing to what the, the peculiar glories of Scripture are. And pretty much the rest of my lesson is footnoted to it. Um, and he says the things you want to look at are not on the screen. Are its divine qualities... So it's beauty, it's efficacy, and it's harmony. The Bible's apostolic origin and its corporate reception. Um, so let, let's start by looking at divine qualities, right? We'll just work through these fairly quickly. So it was, it was like a month or so since our first lesson on the doctrine of revelation. But we talked about natural revelation and how creation, how the conscience, how reason has God's fingerprints on it. We can see something of God in his work that he does in creation. That, that the world is painted in a God-word way. We can see his handiwork in it. And, and the same is true of scripture. It bears the imprints. It bears the fingerprints of God, letting us know that it's from him. There's beauty, there's efficacy, there's harmony. Uh, those are categories from the Westminster Confession. And they overlap, but beauty, beauty's, how do you explain beauty? You, you don't explain beauty, you appreciate beauty, you, you gaze at it. Um, it's like Kelvin's categories, trying to, trying to explain light versus dark, or black and white, or bitter and sweet. But verses like 1 Corinthians Two, four, and five help us. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. There's a, there's a natural rhetorical beauty to Scripture, just like you might find beauty in Dickens or Cicero or whoever. And Paul says, don't focus on that beauty of my teaching. Though, I mean, read Paul. He spoke beautifully. He says, rather, focus on the demonstration, the beauty of the Spirit. It's not working. Of the Spirit and of power. Because that beauty is going to make sure that you're not trusting in my wisdom, the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. There's a beauty in Scripture that lets David and the Psalms say, the law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The rules of the Lord are true. 
More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. There's this goodness, this beauty to Scripture that testifies to itself, that testifies to the, the Spirit and His power. And we see this also through the power and the efficacy of Scripture, right? It's not simply that the Bible says it's from God, but it acts like it's from God. I mean, just think about some of the things that the Bible does, right? It saves. It points us away from ourselves into God and others. That's a miraculous thing. I'm pretty selfish. It teaches us. It rescues us from sin. It warns us. It protects us. It encourages us. It motivates us. It confronts us. It convicts us. It guides us. Like the Bible does things that only God can do. I mean, it saves, 2 Timothy 3.15. I mean, that's surely something only God himself can do. And it says the Bible makes us wise for salvation. The effects of the Bible, the power of the Bible, show that the Bible is indeed from God. Or you have these divine marks of harmony, of unity. So um, Kruger in his book, he would point to doctrinal unity. From the beginning to the end, the Bible has one set of doctrines that it teaches. It's I mean, that's why we can do this kind of systematic study of the teachings of Scripture. Because amazingly, Jeremiah and Jonah and John and Jude and James, they all believe the same things about God and worshiping and obeying him. There's this unity through Scripture over thousands of years and dozens of authors that all teaches the same things about God. There's a redemptive historical unity, which is saying the Bible teaches one big story from beginning to end. Sure, Moses and Genesis and Ruth have their different contributions to the story, um, but at the end of the day, we can see one big story happening. It's not a bunch of disconnected stories. There's structural unity, and that's based on uh, God's covenants and dealings with his people. And it shows that we have the whole of the Bible in the Bible. We're not missing, we're not adding anything. Um, let me explain that one's a little bit difficult. So I think the best argument for the fullness of the Old Testament is that Jesus thinks the Old Testament is full. Um, what do I mean? That we're not missing any book. So has anyone ever seen like a Catholic Bible before? At the end of the Old Testament, you have what's called the Apocrypha, a bunch of books that we don't think came from God. They're not scripture. Um, and I would argue that Jesus doesn't think they're scripture either, and you would think the Trinity would remember writing them. Um, so you might not know this. If you have your Hebrew Bible handy, uh, go ahead and turn. It's in the back. They read right to left. It's not in the front. In your Hebrew version of the scriptures, go to the table of contents, and you'll no one has their Hebrew Bible with them. That's, that's tragic. You'll see that the books here are not organized in the same way that our Old Testament is. In the Hebrew Bible, instead of three divisions, no, in English we have five divisions. They have three. 
They have the law, which is the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numeri, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They have the prophets, which are exactly what you think. Um, and then they have the writings, the miscellaneous things, the Psalms, Job, uh, Song of Songs, uh, even like Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah are in there. And so if you're reading, you know, the Hebrew Bible, you start with Genesis, you end with the end of the miscellaneous writings, which would be Second Chronicles. Here's why that's important. Um, by the way, when it was translated into Greek, they went from three categories, law, prophets, writing, to five categories, law, history, poetry, which is kind of the writings, major prophets, minor prophets. I... I can't figure out why. I'm Surely there is a reason, and I just didn't spend long enough, but I dug for a while and couldn't figure out the rationale behind that. But they did. And all that to say, the Bible Jesus used, his Hebrew Bible begins with Genesis. It ends not with Malachi, but with Second Chronicles. So when Jesus in Luke 11 starts talking about persecution of the prophets, he says, this is Luke 11, 49 through 51, Therefore also, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. All right, Bible trivia time. Who was the first person martyred in the Bible? Genesis 4. Somebody righteous killed by the unrighteous. Abel. Okay. From the foundation of the world. And my pen. Abel. Chronologically speaking, who was the last person martyred in the Old Testament? Not Zechariah. <laughs> I knew you were going to guess that. It was, here we go. It was Uriah, you are, the son of Shemaiah. He's in Genesis, nope, not Genesis, Je Jeremiah 26, 20 through 23. Um, but Jesus doesn't say everyone from Abel to Uriah, the son of Shemaiah, he says, Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was stoned about 200 years before Uriah was killed. Any guesses on why Jesus goes from Abel to the blood of Zechariah, knowing that in Hebrew it's not like he's going A to Z, the first and the last. Um, that's because we're reading this in English, because that's what I know how to read. Any thoughts on why he goes for Zechariah instead of Uriah? It's because as you're reading through 2 Chronicles, the last book of the Bible, the last martyr you're going to find in 2 Chronicles 24, verses 20 and 21, is going to be Zechariah's death. Meaning that Jesus is saying from the very first book of the Bible, of the Old Testament, Genesis, 
to the very last book of the Bible, 2 Chronicles, we're seeing this pattern of righteous prophets being martyred. He's saying the Bible starts in Genesis, it ends in 2 Chronicles, not it ends in the Apocrypha. He said, we have everything that we need in the Old Testament. He, he's implicitly saying the Old Testament is a complete revelation of God from first to last. You have the books you should have, and you have the information you should know. And more than that, Scripture affirms that these books are the Bible. So um, in, in Luke 24, 27, I guess we're doing Luke 24, 44 instead, um, Jesus says to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me, and here's the three sections, right? The law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Psalms is the longest book in the writings, so sometimes you refer to it as the Psalms. Um, just like sometimes the prophets are referred to as Jeremiah, because Jeremiah is the longest book there. Fun fact. Um, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand what? The scriptures. Jesus calls it the law, the prophets, the, the, the Psalms. And then Luke says, this is not just three collections of random writings. These are actually the scriptures. When, when, when he calls them the scriptures, Luke affirms what Jesus talked about in the Old Testament. He's talking about scriptures, not just, hey, this is your tradition. It's fine. Like the tradition points to me. He says, no, the very words of God point to me. He affirms Bible as Bible. And yeah, it's, it's circular. But uh, Mark Thompson, that's a very small quote, points out the nature of the Bible as we have it needs to be taken into account. While, re while we rightly speak of the Bible as a single work with an overarching narrative, a central figure, and a single primary author, it's at the same time a collection of writings from different human authors written over an extended period. Close examination also reveals a variety of genres, law, proverbs, poetry, prophecy, epistle, and apocalyptic vision, as well as historical narrative, highlighting those multiple voices and perspectives that make up the whole. There's a texture and a depth to the Bible, which raises questions about the suggestion that it's Self-testimony is viciously circular. An appeal to the Bible is, in fact, an appeal to the promises recorded in Genesis, played out in the history of Israel, recorded centuries later, alluded to and reaffirmed by the prophetic writings later still, with a poetic voice of David and the wise sayings of Solomon brought alongside at appropriate moments. It's an appeal to the New Testament fulfillment of the Old Testament promise in and anticipation in the record of the life and ministry of Jesus, his words, and in some cases those of his opponents, and the words of his commissioned missionaries and spokesmen. Which is simply astounding. Saying the Bible, to think of the Bible as just one monolithic writing isn't quite true because you have to think about the promises in Genesis that existed thousands of years before they were fulfilled in Christ. So you have all of these different authors coming together to say the same thing. Um, there's a unity of structure and of content that's just amazing. Um, maybe you've seen this chart before. This is a picture 
of all the cross-references that link to one another in Scripture. I think there's over 60,000 of them pictured here. And so down at the bottom, um, these are all the books and all the chapters. The long one is going to be uh, Psalm 119. I can't circle things for some reason. Um, Psalm 119 there. White is Genesis. Other white is Matthew. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's how the Bible syncs up with himself. The, the unity of verses to verses is just absolutely astounding. It's divine, if you will. So, so the Bible has divine qualities. It also has apostolic origin. Um, so this is the second big category. Um, and, and obviously this is a New Testament category, right? That apostles did it. I can give you notes, or if you email me, I'll send you the whole thing. Um, this is a New Testament category because apostles didn't write the Old Testament, but we just proved that the Old Testament's full, so, so that's great. Um, when we get at the apostolic origin, we're getting at the point that, as uh, 2 Corinthians 3 would say, the apostles have this a foundational role of ministers of the new covenant. And because they were authorized messengers of God, their letters, their teaching was inherently authoritative. It's not like they wrote and later they were given authority, but from the second Paul's pen hit the paper, those words had authority. Um, because he was an apostle. He wasn't just a random guy writing. He was writing with authority given by the risen Christ. Um, and, and we see this throughout Scripture. And I'm going to do... What do you want? You want Mark, John, Paul, or Peter? We have time for one of these, probably. Peter. Okay, so Peter talks about... Um, oh, you picked the short one. Way to go here. Um, Peter, Peter makes this really simple for us. He says, our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters. There are some things that are hard to understand, amen, right? Um, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do with the other scriptures. So how does Peter view Paul's writings? How does he think about 1 Corinthians and Romans and Philippians and Ephesians? He thinks it's, it's scripture, right? Um, I'm going to do John too. We have time. That, was, that one was quick. Um, John says, uh, this is John 21, 24. He says, this disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, we know his testimony is true. So John's right there giving his, you know, his byline. Hey, I am the beloved disciple. I'm writing these things. I have firsthand knowledge and authority to say this. Um, and then the chapter before that talks about the reason John wrote his gospel. He said, now Jesus, this is John 20, verses 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So it's interesting. If you read the Gospel of John, you're going to come across this Greek word, grapho. It is written. 
a bunch of times because whenever John introduces Old Testament scripture, he's going to introduce it by saying, it is written. Man should not live on bread alone or whatever verse he's quoting there. But now he's saying there's another authorized messenger, right? An apostle, a disciple who's writing. And he says, and it is written so that you may believe. The Old Testament is written so that you may believe. This book is written so that you may believe. We're following the same pattern, right? Authorized people writing so that you may believe and that you may know God. Um, So there used to be this argument that said the authors of the Bible didn't really know they were writing Bible. They're just, you know, I might write you a letter and later... People found them, they collected them, and they called it Bible. Um, but you can tell from John and from Peter, we had time from Mark and from Paul, that that's not true. They knew what they were doing. They were writing Scripture. And so the last category here we want to talk about is corporate reception, which I think is probably the most, the most misunderstood category. When I say corporate reception, I don't mean that after Constantine became a Christian, he called the Council of Nicaea together in 325. And that's where all the powerful men, in the, the powerful white men in the church, of course, um, came together and they decided what should actually be Bible. The books that kept them in power and kept the oppressed oppressed were called scripture. Everything else that did not support their power was thrown away. Um, I mean, if you give that story to any God-hating, atheistic historian, they're going to laugh you out of the room. Uh, Nicaea had absolutely nothing to do with the canon. There was no church council on what book should be the Bible. Um, Funny enough, like that story that's so ingrained in just American culture uh, came from the Da Vinci Code in 2003, right? And as much as I love Tom Hanks... Uh, it, it's just not true. Uh, the, it's an expansion on an idea that was translated from a 9th century Greek myth in 1601. Uh, Voltaire picked it up in the 1700s, which is like the story of the church coming and they laid all the books, scrolls, whatever, on the altar. And somehow the Bible floated and levitated. The false books got thrown to the floor and then Constantine, whoever went and grabbed the floating ones with a butterfly net and called it the Bible. Clearly, that's not historical. That's a myth. Um, but because of Dan Brown and later Tom Hanks, that's what everyone believes. Way to go. That, that, that's, that's us. Um, but rather, what I mean by corporate reception is... If God convinces individuals that the Bible is Bible by nature of its divine qualities, right, those things like um, beauty and efficacy and harmony, wouldn't it make sense that God convinces groups of people of the same truth? Wouldn't the, the agreement of the church have some weight to it? So if Christians saw this book as from God, shouldn't they all agree it's Bible? That's what corporate reception means. 
I don't have time to get into the historical formation of how this came together. Uh, if you want to go down that rabbit trail, again, Canon Revisited is great. Uh, Timothy Paul Jones has a good book. F.F. Bruce has a long, good, long book. Um, but here's, here's the bottom line when it comes to the corporate reception. Uh, with the New Testament, at least, every branch of the church believes the same books are the New Testament. No branch of the, of the church believes that there should be more books or that there are too many books and we should remove some. The canon came together and it stuck together all throughout church history and it's still universally agreed on today. And when a diverse group of people agree on something, especially in the church, right, that, that should give us a great deal of confidence in their Bibles. Because at the end of the day, I think we want to end with something like not that. Something like uh, John 10, 27. Why do we trust the Bible? Because Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and, they, and I know them and they follow me. We hear God's voice in the Bible and so we follow him. Uh, why do we trust the Bible? Wayne Grudem says, our confidence is based on the faithfulness of God. We know that God loves his people and it is supremely important that God's people have his own words, for they are our life. And he cites Deuteronomy 32, 47, and Matthew 4, 4. So remember what Edward said, that the mind ascends to the truth of the gospel, but by one step, and that's divine glory. God wants us to trust his word, not because we leap into the dark, we just say, you know what? I don't know what's true. I'm just going to take a leap into the dark and hope something catches me. That's not how we come to know Christ. That's not how we come to embrace the Bible. Rather, we see real and compelling grounds for faith. One step, it's divine glory. It's not a jump into the dark. Rather, the reality of the glory of God shown through Scripture is a, is a response to light. It, faith isn't like a blind date where you show up hoping things turned out okay. It's like getting to know the girl or the, the guy and, and seeing how beautiful their character is and how beautiful you know, their appearance is, how, how unified of a person they are, and then being irresistibly drawn towards them based on knowledge and a desire of their beauty, not just a blind trust, like a blind date. And so with it, our, our sight of God's glory through Scripture, through the beauty of it, the harmony of it, the efficacy of it, the authorized apostolic origins of it, the church's confirmation of it, we should have a, an assurance that, yeah, we're seeing the beauty of God here, his trustworthiness. It's like... When Isaiah shows up in God's heavenly throne room, this is Isaiah 6, Isaiah doesn't say, how do I know you're God? Rather, Isaiah sees his glory, his beauty, his righteousness, his perfection. And that sight is enough to convince him that he is in the presence of God. And he falls at his feet and he worships because he sees and believes firsthand. And it's the same as how we experience God through his word.
We have time for one question because that was a lot. Anything I can help clarify or say a different way or answer? Great, well, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are trustworthy and that you want us to have what we need. You want us to have confidence in you and in your word. And so you have given us scripture with clear marks of your own character in it. And even when our faith is feeble, like Abraham's, you swear by yourself to bless us and and to um, give us everything we need. So we thank you for your word. We thank you for these few weeks that we've been able to study it. And um, as we go back to studying Mark or other doctrines in the weeks to come, we pray that as we're in your word, you would just have a, um, that you would give us a greater awareness of seeing all of these marks of your glory and that we would have a greater appreciation for you for revealing yourself to us through the book. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.